Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Welcome, everyone, to this week's podcast. We are very blessed and honored this week to welcome Dr. Barbara Ann Cusick. Barbara Ann is the Chancellor of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. She received her JCL in 1983 and her JCD in 1988 and has been a member of CLSA for almost 40 years. So we are blessed to have her with us today. Barbara Ann is the Rule of Law recipient from 2006 and is the only non-religious layperson to ever win the Rule of Law Award. So welcome, Dr. Cusick. Thank you very much, Donna, and it's Barbara Ann. Okay, so here we are um, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, I can tell our listeners that we had to work uh, diligently to get this time because you have just been absolutely swamped with everything going on in, in your archdiocese. But, but take us back a little bit. Why, why did you go to study canon law? Well, I was a high school teacher. My undergraduate degree was in theology and art. And I was teaching at an all-girls school outside of Washington, D.C. And I was teaching theology, Latin, and art. And I knew I was going to need uh, further education. Uh, I was fortunate when I got my bachelor's degree, I was studying at Mundelein College in Chicago. It's now part of Loyola University. Um, but it had a graduate division in theology, and so I was able my senior year to take graduate level courses. But I knew I was going to have to focus on something. I had dabbled in educational administration and systems analysis and design, and finally said, you've got to get serious about getting an advanced degree. And it just happened that Two different people who didn't who knew me but didn't know each other both said to me, Have you ever thought about studying canon law? Well, despite all the theology courses I'd taken, I'd never reverted to the fact there was canon law. Uh, so being near Catholic U, I was able to go visit the campus, um, visit the Canon Law Society, um, talk to Father Jim Provost, um, and got materials to read. And I, I was immediately struck um, that I thought I had found um, my niche. And so I applied to Catholic U. I was very fortunate um, to receive uh, financial aid. Um, I was able to work for uh, campus ministry, which provide, provided me with room and board. And so I forever grateful to all of those who supported and made uh, my studies possible. That's amazing. So you must have been there prior, just prior to the 83 code being promulgated? We were the class, we were a very large class and I have some very illustrious members of my class. Um, Sister Lynn Gerald, Father John Beale, Father Ricardo Bass, I, Father Pat Kogan, I could go on and on with um, and our, our um, study group for comprehensives <laughs> was, was, was that group of people. How privileged was I to be studying with people of that quality? So we were a large class because I think it was the anticipation that the 83 code would be coming out. So we actually studied the 17 code 
we studied the various schemata and then the 83 code. Um, so as Father Tom Green, one of our per, uh, professors used to say, it was a mescalanza. <laughs> so <laughs> in many ways, it, it was fortunate because we actually saw the law developing. And, um, and so, so privileged um, to have the professors we did. Um, Father Ladislaus Orsi, Father Bob Kennedy, Father Tom Green, Father Jim Proholst, Father Jack Lynch. I could just keep going on. Um, but when you look at those powerhouse canonists in our history, um, we were a very, very lucky bunch. Absolutely. So when you went to study, um, most of the folks I've talked to say I was sent by a superior or a bishop. So what did you anticipate you were going to do with your degrees? Find a job. <laughs> did you, did thinking, you think tribunal work? Was that the main thing? That um, no, I was more interested in non-tribunal work. Um, and so I was kind of a free agent. And so as I was coming, I finished my licensiate, did my one year uh, for uh, my doctoral degree and began writing. And Father Jim Provost was the director of my dissertation. And he knew people in the Chicago Tribunal and they were looking for someone. He didn't want me to get to know them because he didn't want me to leave without finishing writing my dissertation. And he said, people leave and they never finish. You have to finish. And I said, no, I have to leave because my scholarship money is over. I'm already working several part-time jobs um, and I'm going crazy still being in school. So he put me in touch with the people in Chicago. Uh, I was the first non-priest who was gonna be working as a canonist there. And so they did a bang up HR job and they had 12 priests in the room to interview me. So, um, but I was so, so lucky. They offered me the position. Um, everything was new. Um, it was tribunal. Um, but they were so good at continuing my formation as a canonist. And um, so very, very lucky that I was with them. I was there for three years. And then uh, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee in 1987 was having a synod, and I was asked to be a facilitator at the synod. One of my classmates was the chancellor at that time, and another classmate uh, was a pastor here and also working in the tribunal. And I came, I facilitated um, the synod, uh, was one of the facilitators, and then I was asked, would you like to be interviewed for a position as vice chancellor? And it's like, oh, I think I would like that. And I thought I had seen every failed marriage case that I ever wanted to see in three years in the tribunal. I also knew that I probably would have more of an opportunity to teach if I came to the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. So I interviewed and in August, was offered the position in September. 
And so between September and December, I worked in both Chicago and Milwaukee. And then I began full-time in Milwaukee, December 1st of 1987. And my position has varied all along the way. Um, I've had multiple different opportunities. So well over 30 years that you've been there. Do you remember, I'm sure you remember, but what was your doctoral thesis on? My doctoral thesis was the role of the diocesan bishop in Catholic schools in the United States. Oh, okay. Was that something that someone said, hey, here's a topic that needs some research, or did you... No, I think it was because I'd been a teacher, and I thought book three was not always being applied properly, uh, and the role of diocesan bishop understood clearly, and the history of uh, the role of bishops in this country in Catholic education and treaty. Okay, fascinating. So in your role of law, acceptance, response, you, you talk about some of the things that began to happen in 2002 when, you, when Archbishop Dolan had, had just come on board. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about that in case they haven't uh, read, the, read your response. Uh, in 2000, now the Archdiocese of Milwaukee had been responding to clergy sexual abuse early on. So from the um, late 80s, early 90s, we already had a system set up for receiving reports, for providing for counseling for people, um, having an outside group who advised um, the archdiocese. And there were a few dioceses that were like that. Um, we had our first victim assistance coordinator meeting at um, St. Mary um, Seminary Mundelein, St. Mary the Lake Seminary in Mundelein, and five people showed up. So that shows early on, many dioceses were not responding to this issue. But when 2002 hit with the Boston exposure, we were all painted with the same broad brush. So it was as if nobody had done anything. And it made no sense to be defensive. Um, so we just said, we will keep moving forward. Uh, Archbishop Dolan held very large listening sessions. He was installed um, Feast of St. Augustine uh, in 19, I don't remember, um, 2002. And in fall of 2002, we packed downtown conference halls with these listening sessions. Um, there was a lot of venting, um, a lot of anger, and he was receiving mail. He was having requests for uh, survivors to meet with him. And so by December, he just realized, I can't be running a diocese and have all these threads. Uh, we were beginning to be able to do something about the priests who had been removed from ministry. So we had all those canonical cases to handle all the referrals to CDF. And he just knew there were too many um, irons in the fire. And so that's why he asked if I would oversee the diocesan response. And so that included setting up a mediation system uh, with a professional. Uh, we're fortunate that Marquette University has a school um, on mediation, arbitration, 
and an internationally renowned expert who actually set the system up for us. And then began the case, preparing the cases to go to CDF and overseeing that component. And then in 20, uh, then you see, we have this wonderful way of greeting new archbishops here in Milwaukee. So we greet then Archbishop Dolan and everything explodes around his head over clergy sexual abuse. Um, Archbishop um, Wistecki, our current Archbishop, arrived in January of 2010. And on his first year anniversary, January 2011th, we announced we were filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So we just have a great way of welcoming Archbishops <laughs> to Milwaukee. <laughs> Everybody's going to want to come here. Uh, but they know that you've got the experience to handle it, it sounds like. And, and as chancellor, that's some of your duties do overlap with civil law, I would think. Yes, I don't claim to be a civil attorney, uh, <laughs> but got to know um, bankruptcy law pretty well. Uh, I've worked with probably five dioceses now um, on the canonical components that you need to keep in mind if you are filing Chapter 11 reorganization. So let's go to something a little more uplifting. Do you have any Thank favorites, you. favorite stories from your ministerial experiences or people you've encountered or things like that? Well, I've been fortunate uh, here in, uh, in Milwaukee. I came as the first um, non-priest in the chancery office. Um, and I was fortunate that I never felt I had to prove myself. Um, I felt supported. Um, our chancellor at that time, um, I would work at an outside desk and he had an interior office and there were times when priests would come in and kind of just walk past me to go to his office to ask him questions. And so he had a very clever way of doing it. He'd walk back out of the office and he'd say, Bartman, listen to this question. I think I know what the answer is, but could you help? So you never had to say she knows what she's doing. You can ask her these questions. This is a very subtle way. Um, and um, so that's always one of the cute things I think about um, when I think about how do you get um, developed, uh, how do you get formed uh, in your ministry. And it's all kinds of people around you doing that. Um, Did you have programs to help get people through when bankruptcy can make an upheaval on everything because you're reorganizing, you're looking to cut things. How did the people within your area handle all of that? We had already been uh, pulled into the California cases and had done a large settlement out in California. Uh, we had no insurance coverage. Most dioceses, when they file, they expect their insurance company to help cover some of the settlement. But we had a very unique legal landscape here in Wisconsin. Uh, we had had lawsuits filed, um, most of them on negligent supervision or respondeat superior. Those went up to our state Supreme Court where on two occasions a decision was handed down saying you could not sue the church for the actions of its ministers. So that was standing law in Wisconsin. So people didn't have uh, any kind of vehicle for restitution. They couldn't use the courts. That's why we chose the independent mediation 
system as a vehicle. One time, again, a case was tried, went up to the Supreme Court, and again, we had a different um, Chief Justice, um, but they were advised, no, you can't, you can't sue the church. We have these, we have precedent here. But you know, you could think about suing them on fraud. And as you know, fraud is an intentional tort. You are not insured for intentional torts. So when all of the cases started filing in on fraud, um, we knew that we were not going to be able to handle that. Remarkably, in the end, our insurers did pick up a huge portion of the settlement, but they did it through what is called a buyback. So they actually paid to pull back all of the insurance policies they had issued over the years. Um, we were very fortunate that um, we were able to defend the separateness of all of our parishes. And so the property of the parish was not the property, was not part of the estate of the diocese. We had outstanding civil attorneys, um, very dedicated men and women uh, who were just brilliant in the law. I, I, I was in law uh, at the way they could slice and analyze pieces. So we didn't lose our community foundation. Um, we were able to protect our um, perpetual care fund because it was a trust. So we had done a lot of legal things, legal uh, mechanisms over the years to, to just make sure we had things set up properly. We did it both with civil structures and canonical structures. So the Catholic Community Foundation is a foundation at civil law and it's an autonomous pious foundation at canon law. So we tried to do those parallel uh, constructions. That does speak a lot for having that kind of planning under your belt. And you, it sounds like you've learned quite a bit about civil law, not to say the hard way, but just by experience. And sometimes that's even better than classroom learning, I can tell you that <laughs> from, from experience. So, and you mentioned in your role of law talk that as canonists, we must be dedicated to justice and we must be dedicated to reconciliation. That's, that's such an important theme, I think. Um, that some people embrace and yet I don't think the whole church in the United States has has reached that level of understanding yet. Yeah, the reconciliation, you can't force it. Uh, it's gift. We don't draw the person to that point of reconciliation. They have to be drawn there. In terms of the World of Law Award and your time with the Canon Law Society of America, you've been with the society now for nearly 40 years. So uh, how important do you think the CLSA is in the life of a, of a canonist in the United, especially in the United States, but anywhere in the world? Again, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I was drawn to the activity of the society um, because it is actually the work of the society that drew me to canon law. And uh, I've been fortunate to serve on a number of committees, uh, to serve on the Board of Governors, I did, I did run for office for vice president. I didn't win. Um, and I tell the person who did win, who then later went on to become a bishop, 
that he had me to thank for becoming a bishop because it was his role as president that got him there. <laughs> you also mentioned in your role law speech, because you've been a teacher, that you encouraged some students to move into canon law. What would you say to someone now that's thinking of studying canon law? Yes, I would encourage, I have encouraged. In fact, um, I'll tell you a story. I won't use any names because I don't want to embarrass anyone. But um, I think it was my first year that I was working in Chicago. The CLSA convention was in Milwaukee. And so I came up for it. One of my classmates who had a newborn was coming and we were looking for a babysitter. And so the chancellor said, well, let me contact campus ministry at Marquette and see if they had someone they could send. So we got called by this young woman and she said, oh, I'd be happy, but may I come early because I'd like to talk with you about becoming a canon lawyer. And we're like, oh, that's wonderful. A little while later, there's a knock at the hotel door and I open the door and there was standing what I thought was a 12-year-old. This was, this was the college student who was thinking seriously about studying canon law. And the reason, now these are just how all these threads work together. The reason she began thinking about it was because Father Laz Orsi was on the board of trustees of Marquette University, and I believe she may have been a student rep. Somehow she got to know him. So there you have one of our giants of canon law encouraging this, and then she comes to two neophyte canonists to ask for advice, and she is a fine canonist and has, has very impressive positions. In my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think there's a benefit to someone actually doing some church ministry um, of some sort, whether that's education or parish ministry or um, work in a diocese, some kind of pastoral ministry before beginning to study canon law. I think there's a, a real value um, in letting the church form you, letting the people help form you um, before you move into the formal canonical studies. But again, just my humble opinion. No, I think that's very important. And, and maybe because I also went later in life to study uh, canon law, you don't know what kind of roads this field will take you down. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on that night when, actually you would have been told probably in January, as you said, that you won, and then you had to prepare your talk, what kind of thinking went into preparing your, your role of law acceptance? Yeah, I think I was very much living uh, through the experience of um, the clergy sexual abuse crisis. I had had to reconcile that in my own life. I grew up in a very Catholic family. Uh, we lived only two blocks from the, the parish church and rectory. And we always had priests in our house for meals, for just sitting around. Um, we were a large suburban parish, so we always had multiple uh, what they called curates or associates back then. I respected priests, but I also knew they were human. So I had to reconcile a lot of things internally. I think a lot of times in images. And so I'll tell you a story. Um, when then Archbishop Dolan was going for his quinquennial visit, 
which I strongly tried to encourage him, he didn't need to do canonically. He was still too new as a bishop in this archdiocese, but felt he loves Rome and he wanted to do a pilgrimage. He had done one the year before um, when he received his pallium. And so, no, we're going to do a, an ad lim and a pilgrimage. And he kept insisting I was going with him. And I kept insisting I was not. <laughs> and so finally, I realized I had no choice. He wanted somebody visiting CDF while we were there to discuss our cases. So, so I went. Uh, one thing that I was very, well, really looking forward to was we were doing a side trip to Orvieto. And when I, one of my art courses as an undergrad, I had done a paper on the Basilica at Orvieto. And I was just thrilled to be able to go and see it in person. And so I don't know if you know Orvieto, but you know, these winding streets curve around and go up until you get to the plaza. And I was so excited as I turned and faced the cathedral, the basilica, the entire facade was covered with scaffolding. They were restoring it. And I thought, what an image for our church today. Mm. You know, when we look at the church today, a lot of people don't see the beauty. They just see the scaffolding. Uh, they see all the repair that needs to be done. Um, but if we're people of faith, um, we can still look behind the scaffolding and know the beauty is still there. I was blessed to visit Orvieto in 2016 and there was no scaffolding. So <laughs> it is indeed a beautiful place. So, so any other places in Europe or in Rome or in Italy that you have memories of? Well, we just spent a lot of time visiting churches. I didn't get to any museums, so if I were doing it myself, I'd probably slip a few museums uh, in there as well. We did get to the, the Vatican uh, Museum, and because Cardinal Harvey um, is a Milwaukee priest, um, he made sure we got to see some behind-the-scenes pieces. He was also there when I was, he was at St. Paul Outside the Walls, and invited us for coffee, and uh, that was a, a he's, nice experience. He's just full of hospitality. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, Barbara Ann, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Do you have any, any final words or for our members of the society? No, just thank you for all that you do, and let us go forward on the road that has brought us to where we are. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Donna. Thank you.